Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast presented by TasteWise. My name is Ron, and welcome back to Food Service Sales Month here at TasteWise. All of the activities that we're doing this month are all about uh, selling to restaurants and working with restaurants to make them more successful and uh, grow um, those accounts. Today, we're talking specifically about menu gaps, how you can take a look at changes in menus uh, and find opportunities within them to either help uh, restaurants uh, design better menus um, or uh, move more of a certain product. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Miriam, what hey. has three letters and starts with gas? Starts with gas? A car. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that is, that is, that is something. That is a three letters and starts with gas. That's a great one, Ron. A little bit like you know, personally offensive. I feel (laughs) just at how bad it is, but it's good. We'll keep it. It's a it's a thinker. It's a thinker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So today uh, we wanted to talk about uh, menu gaps. So. Uh, last week uh, on the pod, we talked mostly about um, how uh, menus are performing and different delivery platforms are performing in uh, different areas of uh, of the U.S. Um, yeah. What's happening in New York? What's happening in Phoenix? What's happening in L.A.? I thought that was uh, fascinating. Um, and today we're talking more about how can we use specific menu gaps uh, in uh, in specific dishes that are being offered either on uh, on delivery or on on site menus, but mostly on delivery to identify food service sales opportunities. And I think this is a really interesting space because um, there could be things that are either obvious, like delivery gaps. For example, I'm selling a certain type of uh, packaged good or a beverage or something like that, and it's available on the on-site menu um, and on DoorDash, but it's not available on uh, Uber Eats, for example. And then I want to use that gap, I want to close that uh, gap, to make sure that they're selling my product uh, everywhere possible. Um, but there are also more interesting opportunities and within uh, things that are being sold within combos. And there's just so much of um, so much opportunity that I think is unique for the reason that um, um, these are things that always make both the seller uh, and the restaurant more successful. Um, and should be positioned as such. And I think that is a really uh, interesting way to to do sales. Uh, So can you walk us through uh, what we're going to be focusing on? Sure. Um, So I love what you just said about it being a win-win situation, right? Um, And menu gaps are a great way to uh, identify really easy ways for both restaurants and their um, kind of providers, right, to both make like make more money to be if we put it frankly right um, and to build relationships that are built on trust um, and able to see, see, succeed more in the market. So today we're going to be talking about uh, just a few specific categories that I've pulled um, to look at dish gaps and what that actually means on menus. Um, if we have time, we'll cover a little bit of delivery gaps as well. Uh, but to set the stage, I want to recall a little bit of what we talked about last week. Um, so what Ron just preferenced. Pre- <laughs> what Ron just prefaced uh, this section with. So um, we talked about how uh, last week um, in different major American cities, 
uh, the the idea of dynamic menus. So menus that have added an item uh, to their menu in the last month, right? And you could also look, and we talked about this last week, you could also look at, um, you know, menus that have lost items, menus that have changed their pricing. All of those are really interesting signals that you could look at in order to understand, uh, you know, what's going on in a restaurant. Are they, you know, devoted to their certain menu and have had it that way for, you know, several months? Um, or are they, you know, have they brought in a new vendor and they've added a new menu item? Are they, uh, you know, something not working? And so they've just removed it and they're looking for a replacement. So um, it kind of shows you the the kind of fertile nature of um, of a restaurant and what's going on there based on signals. So uh, just the, the data from last week, just to kind of set the scene here. Um, do you remember who won uh, the title of most dynamic uh, city in the U.S. for restaurant menu changes? That was Phoenix, right? Or Pittsburgh? It was Phoenix. It was Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. Um, coming through. Hey, happy Winter Olympics run. Wish I'd done something with that here. <laughs> that would have been a great. That would have been a great framing. Um, yeah. So Phoenix is the uh, the winner, and about nineteen percent of menus just in the last month in Phoenix have added a new menu item. Okay, so we spoke last week about kind of um, being able to pick, have prioritize different geographic regions, right? If you know that one region is particularly changing a lot and bringing in new vendors or experimenting with creativity on menus, that's a great place to start. Um, and just to give you the number for those of you who maybe weren't uh, with us last week, um, 15% of restaurants nationwide um, have changed their menu. So a little bit less than Phoenix. So Phoenix is sitting at around 19%. Is so this over the, the past month? The, the past month alone. And that's just for adding a, adding a menu item. If we looked at also, you know, subtracting a menu item and changing pricing, whatever, those numbers would be higher. But I wanted to look just at my adding a menu item um, to think about, you know, why might a restaurant add a menu item, right? Maybe it's, uh, you know, the chef has a new idea. Maybe something about seasonality. Maybe they just brought in a new provider. Uh, maybe customer feedback. Maybe they had a seasonal item that was so popular they brought it in. Maybe it's a new combo item, right? So there's lots of different things here. Um, and sales teams who can identify those things um, or those signals, right, and, and start a conversation or continue a conversation with a food service location um, will be able to kind of build that relationship, uh, I think, faster and, and more deeply. So um, that's the context that I want to talk about today. Uh, and I want to look at a few different categories um, and just give you some really exciting numbers on uh, menu gaps, specifically around the inclusion of different types of either dishes or products. And and what that can mean for um, the brands that are stand behind those products. So we'll start with, uh, what do you think? Start with beverages? Let's go for it. Okay. So um, if we look at, and just as a, a side note, um, I've used the food service sales solution that we have here at TasteRides for all of this data. Um, so if you're interested in that, please shoot us a note. But this is something that you can also do uh, you know, with any of the number other ways of, of sourcing data that's available to you out in the market. Um, we, so if we look at dish gaps, let's start with Coca-Cola. All right. Um, Coca-Cola is one of those ubiquitous products, especially in the U.S., right? Um, we know that they're on tons of different menus. And if we look at the percentage of restaurants uh, in the U.S. that actually don't feature Coca-Cola, okay, so this is the first type of menu gap I want to talk about, that's around 68%. So 68% of restaurants without Coca-Cola don't feature, sorry, a little bit. 60% of restaurants in the U.S. don't feature Coca-Cola. All right, so off the bat, that's already like a really interesting statistic to hold with, right? You know that there's six, there's a mark, a kind of market size of 68% of U.S. restaurants. That's several, several thousand restaurants, right? That might be interested in bringing Coca-Cola into their uh, into their menus. Um, and you could evaluate, you know, based on what we were saying before about looking at the specific menus themselves. Are these restaurants that have 
uh, soda already? And, you know, is there a reason why they're not having Coca-Cola? And this would be, you know, like, let's say Coca-Cola sales team wants to evaluate all of this. Um, But could also be great for, you know, smaller scale CPGs who are creating soda products, right? Was there an active choice why a restaurant chose not to include this on their menu generally? Um, And how can I help fill that gap? So that's, I want to start with kind of the like macro biggest example focused around a brand to help us understand that first type of menu gap, which is just lack of inclusion, right? There's 68% of restaurants don't mention Coca-Cola um, on their menu. Um, I want to also call out for us that uh, this and this example is interesting because Coca-Cola is one of those things that is, is synonymous with its product, right? So when Coca-Cola is referred to, it is referred to as Coca-Cola, right? You're not going to find a menu that says, we offer soda um, and doesn't mention that it's Coca-Cola, right? That that's, mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Um, so I think understanding brand presence is another another side of this coin. But I, w- I want to pause us here, and Rhonda, if you have any questions, yeah. I'd love to hear them. So, um, so I think that there are several different things to, to consider here. Like one is using menus as a measure for brand pen, for uh, brand penetration across the U.S. and across other markets yeah. as well um, is something that we're seeing our customers doing uh, more and more. So especially with products who are specifically branded, another area that I know we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, that we're seeing this happening a lot um, is in uh, the alternative protein space where we're seeing a specific type of either um, alternative egg or alternative meat um, being called out specifically in menus as sort of like a, a certification of this dish uh, being aligned with what you're trying to accomplish, right? With your lifestyle. Um, with beverages, I think it's uh, it's usually much more straightforward. It's the name of the soda. It's the name of the, the beer. Um, even if we're accounting that part of this 68% is, you know, you have to account for places that uh, for whatever reason, uh, beverages are not relevant or places that only sell very high-end uh, like uh, uh, alcoholic beverages, for example. So maybe it wouldn't make sense for sure. their menus. Um, it still gives you a very interesting measure of the total addressable market that these menu gaps represent. Um, and uh, and then you could even have a rough calculation of what's the dollar amount uh, that's on the table within these delivery gaps. So my question is, um, when you say that uh, 68% of American restaurants don't feature Coca-Cola on their menus, does that mean do not feature them at all or fe- or only features them on you know their menus on one delivery platforms but not on another? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the former, and we'll talk more about delivery gaps in just a moment. But um, yeah, featuring Coca, don't not featuring Coca Cola at all, right? Net, there's mm-hmm. uh, there's no mention of Coca Cola. Um, and per your point just a moment ago, if we actually zoom out and we think about um, restaurants that are missing soda generally, right? So looking at all the different brand types um, and different types of soda, right, or soft drinks. However, you know that this is like a regional thing, right? Um, some people mm-hmm. in the U.S. call it soda, some people call it pop, some people call it soft drinks, whatever. If you're looking at all of that, which our system can identify, um, we are seeing that actually 57% of U.S. restaurants are missing soda generally. Mm-hmm. So um, if you look at uh, the percentage of restaurants without Coca-Cola, it's Coca-Cola and it's 68. Then you look at the number of restaurants that don't have soda at all, which is 56, right? You're looking at actually like a 12% gap. So of restaurants who, uh, right, of who, who do offer soda um, but don't offer Coca-Cola. So that already is like a really interesting, I think, kind of fertile. And I might overlay on top of that even, um, like if you're doing that type of research, uh, usually most brands will have uh, some sort of uh, direct competitor uh, in their space. We're seeing this a lot with, um, I think, with uh, alcoholic beverages as well, 
where menus that will feature a certain type of uh, like IPA, for example, might compete with like a, a different popular type of, of IPA or you know one type of like iced tea versus another type of iced tea. So it might be interesting to take a look at how many restaurants are offering this category of products at like at all. How many of them are right. offering my brand and how many of them are offering my top competitor's brand and try to overlay you know, those three numbers and see what's uh, like in that Venn diagram of restaurants that I can sell into, what's that middle spot that represents, um, I guess you could consider it like the low-hanging fruit, right? Like the, the restaurants that right. I should be prioritizing and reaching out to uh, since I know that they're interested in my space. I know that they have an audience for it, but they don't necessarily sell my brand. Exactly. Um, and if we wanted to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, we could look at how, you know, Coca-Cola is one of those things that it's it's not associated with a particular cuisine, let's say, right? Or a particular um, type of restaurant, right? It's pretty ubiquitous. Um, but you could do the same kind of calculation driving deeper into something that is a little bit more niche. So for example, if we wanted to look at um, vegan cheese, right? And understanding percentage of restaurants that don't serve vegan cheese at all. Um, and you could even look at that as a function of, you know, how many restaurants are vegan restaurants or do serve vegan something, right? But don't mm-hmm. serve uh, vegan cheese. And, and that would be a very quick way to find like that kind of what you're talking about, that like niche little um, yep. section there. So that's the, the kind of first uh, realm of menu gap, right? So thinking about restaurants that just don't include something at all, right? There's a complete lack of presence on menus. Um, and for mm-hmm. those of you, what Ron was saying about like particular competitors, let's actually just quickly look at, uh, at Pepsi. I'll just tell you the numbers. So um, Pepsi has, that's an 87% gap. Um, so 68% of restaurants don't serve Coca-Cola, whereas 87 don't don't serve Pepsi, right? So just kind of thinking about like brand presence, right? And competitor performance and all of that, that's an interesting kind of comparison right there. We won't get into in deep into that today, but just wanted to put that out there. Um, and if we go back to that Coca-Cola example, we can introduce the second type of menu gap. So the first one was not including at all. The second one would be um, a restaurant, let's say, does serve a certain item. In this case, we'll use Coca-Cola, right? But it does not include that item on each of its delivery platform integrations. So let's say that a restaurant um, you know, is offering their menu on Uber Eats, Grubhub, and DoorDash, um, and it for sure sells Coca-Cola on Grubhub and Uber Eat, but for some reason, it's not included it on its DoorDash menu. Okay, and there might be any number of reasons why they chose to do that. Um, but on the most part, there aren't really any compelling reasons to leave something off of a, of a menu in that way, right? Especially if you already offer it on your other two. So mm-hmm. if I was a, you know, a Coca-Cola sales team, let's say, um, or a distributor, and I wanted to understand you know, what was the, the motivation behind that choice, I can actually use that as sort of like an, an entry point into having that conversation of like, hey, this goes back to that win-win we were talking about at the start, right? Hey, yeah. uh, you know, let's use the example of, you know, Thai restaurant in Minnesota, I see that you are using, uh, you have our product um, on two of your menus, but a third, you're actually losing out on quite a bit of money here. Um, how can I help support you in, in, in including that on your on your delivery menu? Yeah, and I, and I might be getting ahead of uh, what um, we're going to be talking about later, but um, it is also true for, for combos, right? Like uh, if we know that a certain combo um, with a beverage or uh, or with like a certain type of soda, a certain type of, uh, of beer, whatever, um, is selling very well on one platform and it stands to reason that it will sell well on other platforms. So these can be huge gaps, right? Or it could even be simpler than that to say, um, I know that you sell burgers. I know that you sell uh, soda, right? Uh, but I don't see you yeah. offering any 
um, either like LTOs or uh, or just the regular combos that uh, that you have on your menu, um, featuring my product in there. And I can tell you, I, and then you can pull up the numbers. I can tell you that if you do, you will have an X percent increase in sales. Right. So again, it's one of those win-win situations where here in this situation, you might even not even need to like sell a product. Right. It's more about helping the restaurant partner. Um, design their menus in a way that that optimizes for their sales. Right. So I'll give I'll just give you that number of that example that you gave. Right. There's sixty nine thousand one hundred and forty four combos nationwide that don't include Coca Cola, um, and that number is a, a metric that we use that's reflective of the gap between the usage of Coca Cola in a combo, like in part of that combo on a menu items, as part of the total combo menu items offering. Does that make sense? So that number yep. of sixty nine thousand um, is like exactly that opportunity that you're you're referencing just now. Um, I'll also, the total gaps for Coca-Cola, and this is again talking about those delivery gaps, so not just like blanket non-inclusion, but, um, or exclusion is the word for non-inclusion, um, looking at how we include it, uh, how it's not included on delivery platforms that they do have integrations with and they do serve it on their menu. So um, there's almost 156,000 opportunities across the U.S. of places that uh, serve Coca-Cola generally and do it on at least one other delivery platform, but not on on at least one of the others that they offer. So an example I can give you here is mm-hmm. Opai Thai Restaurant, which appears to be in, let's see, in New York, um, has great delivery ratings. Uh, it serves on Grubhub and on DoorDash generally, um, and it serves Coca-Cola. It only offers Coca-Cola on its Grubhub menu, but not on its DoorDash menu. So if I were you know prospecting that restaurant or already had a relationship with that restaurant, I would say, hey, Oh, Pai Tai, what's going on, right? Um, I know that you have Coca-Cola. This is a bunch of money you're leaving on the table. I could quantify that into a financial value, right? By saying, mm-hmm. you know, if you had at least one person buy Coca-Cola on DoorDash each day, here's the like the you know the value that yeah. would be bringing in the door for you in terms of revenue. If there's anyone from Oh, Pai Tai in New York <laughs> listening, get on it. <laughs> get on it, exactly. Um, Okay, so I want to spend the next couple of minutes here talking about that calculation. So looking at sample opportunity sizes, if that's all right, um, for for the beverage categories. So um, I did some fancy calculations. Uh, just kidding. It wasn't that fancy. It was super easy. Um, and looking at menu gaps um, and what the actual like revenue gap is. So if we looked, if we totaled all of the menu gaps, meaning on delivery, so looking at all of the places where, um, you know, one delivery platform is offers this and another does not for the same restaurant. So it's the same location. Um, and I totaled that for all of the non-alcoholic beverages, uh, like the major non-alcoholic, both beverage brands and just like types. So the difference between, let's say like, you know, regular seltzer and, you know, Pepsi or Coke or, you know, look at juices as well, like Minute Maid, Teas, Lipton, et cetera. Um, and totaled up all of the, uh, you know, the gaps in the U.S. across the country. And then looked at the average pricing for a non-alcoholic beverage across the U.S., right? Um, And calculated it out that essentially, get ready to have your socks blown off, Ron. I don't know that you're ready because this is a whopping number. All right? I'm ready. Um, Looking at nearly $3 billion a year left on the table by not including uh, these non-alcoholic beverages on all delivery menus where that could be a possibility. Three billion. I'll tell you the exact number. Two billion six hundred and ninety-four million eight hundred and twenty-seven thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. That's crazy. So which is why that's and that's that's just and I'll yeah, and I'll just explain that. That's if um each delivery platform 
that is missing an item, one of these non-alcoholic beverage items, right, from a delivery platform integration that they already have, right, if they were to offer that, and if they just got five orders a day of that item, mm-hmm. okay? So let's say that I'm missing, you know, one of these and I added it to my menu, blah, blah, blah. Um, if everybody in the country did that and filled all of those gaps and there was just five orders a day for these categories, all year we're looking at a $3 billion increase in revenue. $3 billion. So realistically, so realistically it's, it's actually a much, much higher number. Right, because right, exactly, exactly, because like cause most places you would you would hope would be selling more than five a day, right? Um, and I can tell you that as well for coffee, if you'd like to know. So same calculation, looking at coffee inclusions. Um, so again, these are places that do sell coffee on at least one delivery mechanism, but not on all of them. Um, so that is a five hundred and fifty-four million dollar, almost five hundred fifty-five million dollar um, get like loss of revenue in a year. Um, beer is sitting at about a billion which is wild. Um, hard cider, we're just going like a little bit more niche into the alcohol genre. So hard cider even is sitting at around 47 million. Um, and cocktails broadly, and this is something we looked at, uh, you know, looking at the rise of like cocktail kits and cocktails for delivery and all of that good stuff, um, is sitting at about two, 2 billion. So if we totaled up all of the alcohol that I just mentioned, so beer, hard cider, and cocktail, obviously there are lots of other types of alcoholic beverages, but if we just looked at those top three, which are pretty significant in the U.S., we're looking at a nearly $4 billion um, revenue loss. Just to, to make sure I kind of understand the, the calculation. So let's, if we take soda, for example, um, you're, this is grouping together all um, non-alcoholic beverages that kind of fit the soda category, grouping Not just them soda. together. Not just soda, things like, you know, uh, Snapple, Fanta, right? Uh, like Simply okay. Orange, th- like all non-alcoholic beverages. So taking all non-alcoholic beverages and looking mm-hmm. across all of these beverages, um, how many of them are featured on one delivery platform but, none, but not on the other? And then seeing like, what is the opportunity that this whole category uh, represents? Um, exactly. So if each of those yeah. restaurants were to tomorrow make the change on their online platform and just add the you know the capability that they already have on the other platforms um and they had just five orders a day of that new additional item on their menu, if every single restaurant did that in the US, that's an additional 3 billion. That's the proof case, right? Like that's that's the actual like tangible number of why being able to track menus matters so much. Um, because mm-hmm. if you're a you know a sales team and you're looking to understand you know how to take advantage of that, if you come to these restaurants and say, hey, did you know that you're missing? I mean, you could use that that national number. You could even look at an individual location and total it up, right? You could say, hey, in your location alone, I see that you're missing. You know, you have 55 opportunities for filling in the gaps on your delivery platforms, and that's looking at a you know you could do that that calculation easily and say, mm-hmm. you know, you're missing on let's say a thousand dollars a week that you could fill. How can I help you? Um, make sure you take advantage of that. And that's an easy thing, right? You've you've helped them win. You're winning. Yeah. You're demonstrating a kind of trustworthy approach to this. And that's a really great way to build relationships in food service sales. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, a while ago we talked about how you kind of position yourself as a trusted advisor for, um, for these restaurants. And I think we're seeing this a lot with... Um, with distributors, because we work with quite a few distributors who sell to restaurants. And um, I'm always amazed when I talk to um, salespeople from uh, the distribution companies, because they are such experts on uh, menu design, 
right? And you right. wouldn't necessarily expect that, but uh, but they have to be, right? Because their customers in their uh, region, um, they have to be that trusted advisor that you go to in order to ask, um, what else should I be selling? What ingredients should I be incorporating? What beverages will help me make more money? Uh, what will serve the uh, you know the audiences in my area better? And you talk to salespeople from distribution companies, big and small, because uh, there's there's plenty of these companies out there. Um, and you see that at least the ones that are doing the best um, are uh, really experts on not only menu design, but really up to speed on what is happening in that specific region where uh, where they're selling into. Um, and yeah. if you're looking into, okay, in my region, these are five restaurants that I'm categorizing them by uh, popularity, um, their delivery rating, and their delivery volumes. So, you know, a restaurant could be very, very highly rated, but not actually have a lot of output because maybe it's like a gourmet restaurant, very like high end, and it actually doesn't do yeah. a lot of delivery. Whereas you can look at another one that um, the maybe the star rating goes down uh, statistically a little bit because it just has such a massive uh, delivery volume. Uh, so maybe you ca- categorize that by that, and then you can see okay, from this second restaurant, the delivery gap adds up to millions of dollars a year that they could be making without me actually selling them another product. This is more about me helping them optimize what they're doing, um, which will then, of course, uh, lead to them uh, getting more of my product if it's a beverage or if it's a a, a packaged good or whatever it might be. Um, That's such a, it it really is a kind of a mind-blowing number, right? And I think if I'm understanding correctly, it's also... And that's just sheer optimization, like that's like yeah. what you just said. It's sheer optimization. There's nothing. There's no heavy lifting to do here, right? It's a, it's an easy fix, and it's also a low estimate, right? Like because right uh, because you're saying this would this is what would happen uh, for just five orders a day if every restaurant were to plug yeah. those gaps. Yeah. Yep. So if only you know, let's say twenty percent of those were to and and have like ten orders, you'd have a different number, but it would be you know fairly comparable. Amazing. Okay. What's um, next? Okay, I want to kind of wrap us up for today with um, an, an example from uh, from food and not from from beverage. So we I mentioned a few minutes ago about the uh, the vegan cheese example, which is my favorite example currently. Um, so remember how I mentioned before? Uh, let's take a look. Actually, I can give you the number. So ninety four percent of restaurants across the U.S. don't include vegan cheese. That makes sense, right? Vegan cheese is a fairly niche offering. This is just out of the entire landscape of of restaurants, right? So if you think about that, only 6% of restaurants nationwide actually do offer vegan cheese. But if we drill down a little bit deeper and we look at, um, you know, restaurants that are vegan and Mm -hmm. do and do not serve vegan cheese, that would be another example. And I want to actually take us even further into that niche with a number. So if we look at the number, the percentage of Mexican restaurants, which is, I think, um, you know, a place that that involves a lot of cheese, right? And a lot of cheese to, kind of distributors going on there. If we look at the percentage of Mexican restaurants nationwide that do serve at least some vegan items and particularly name it as such, right? So I'm not just talking about, you know, let's say have a, a vegetarian fajita component of a dish, right? I'm saying like specifically name, this is a vegan menu item, right? So clearly they're, they are demonstrating that and they're having like cons- customer engagement with it because it's on the menu. Um, but they don't serve vegan cheese. That's 19%. 
19%. So if you are a vegan cheese provider and you know, for example, let's say that Mexican restaurants have proved to be um, a great selling place, selling point for you, and you have a particular strength, let's say in Mexican dishes or Mexican cuisine, um, you're looking at a, a sample size of 19% of Mexican restaurants nationwide. That could be a great fit for your product. Um, so that's another kind of example of how how you could drill into that and and find ways to to present yourself to new prospects. Yeah, and it would be interesting to look at um, for either a certain type of dish that includes vegan cheese. Um, what would be kind of like the average price point uh, that uh, exactly, consumers yeah. feel comfortable uh, paying? Um, and then you could also estimate in the very similar way to what we were talking about before. You could estimate out um, what is the uh, addressable market that I'm that I'm looking at. Because um, very often what we found is that you also have to sort of uh, sell these uh, sales motions internally, right? You have to convince yeah. people internally in your company that um, this is what I'm going after and this is my strategy to do it. And here are the numbers to, to back it up, right? Whether um, you're talking more from like a marketing perspective and this is a push that I'm trying to do. For example, in my area, I want to send out a promotion that will get Mexican restaurants in my area to feature um, a vegan cheese in uh, their menus, right? Uh, as uh, some sort of a campaign. Um, or, you know, um, m- many of these campaigns kind of following the, um, there's the the case, like the super famous case study about uh, the Intel Inside, uh, the Intel yeah. um, marketing campaign where they they don't sell directly to, uh, to consumers, but they ran this wildly successful campaign that uh, educated consumers to ask for, you know, Intel processors and computers, right? To help drive demand, to have uh, the the consumer ask from uh, their uh, providers. Yeah, so very similarly, we're seeing, uh, especially in local markets, a lot of these types of things where you want to, to use either uh, recipes or marketing campaigns or the right messaging going after the right audience. You want to make sure that uh, you're increasing awareness for a specific type of um, of food or beverage in your specific area that you're trying to to get into. And then you try to measure your penetration into that area by looking at um, your brand mentions on uh, on menus. Um, but right. you have to have the data to, to back up, you know, how am I going to, to run this campaign? So that could be really good for that. Yeah, amazing. Um, while you're saying, and I agree with all of that, I think that's really a, a great point. While you're saying all of that, I'm actually just crunching some numbers, and I th- it might be fun just to do this uh, live, and I can tell you, um, I can tell you some some insights here. So you just said uh, previously that we wanted to look at um, the specific dishes that use vegan cheese, right, and kind of like find an, an estimate there. So um, easily using our tool, I just kind of pulled up vegan cheese uh, in Mexican cuisine, and I found that the most common application for vegan cheese in Mexican cuisine is burritos. So 50% of, t- on, on menus specifically, so 50% of menu mentions currently in the U.S. Um, for mm-hmm. a Mexican item that uses vegan cheese is as a burrito. So burritos is, is clearly the winner there. So we could look at, you know, vegan cheese using burritos and find the average price. So the average price in a Mexican restaurant specifically is $7. If we wanted to look at that as like a new American restaurant, it would be 16 But let's specifically focus on that Mexican just because that we were talking about. So we know that a vegan, cheese bur- a vegan cheese burrito is $7. So we could take, you know, go back to that number that we had before and multiply that out, right? And I'm sure, I'm not going to do it right now, but I'm sure you would have like, you know, multiple millions of maybe, let's say, High hundreds of thousands <laughs> to millions of dollars um, of gaps there, which is pretty cool. 
Yeah, no, I think uh, it would even be uh, more than that. But uh, but it's amazing to be able to it's amazing to be able to to do that math, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, when uh, you're selling a product, it's always about either helping you make more money or saving uh, more time, right? When uh, we like being more efficient in your business in uh, in some way. So uh, when uh, when we Talk to our customers, and uh, and we sell the TasteWise platform. Uh, obviously, um, often it will come down to how quickly can I get to market? Um, how quickly can I do market research? How quickly can I get to uh, to the restaurants that need to buy my product? And uh, and how much money do I stand to make uh, from uh, from this improvement? And then obviously it's worth the the investment. So very similarly um, with uh, with restaurants, it's the same deal as well, right? And right. Having having this proof that if you add this thing to your menu that is based on my ingredients or my product, you will add this many millions of dollars to your annual revenue um, is just uh, just an amazing sales pitch. Yeah, I agree. That's I mean, what could be better than that, right? I think um, this is incredible and useful. And thank you so much for putting that together. I do want to mention that. Um, uh, throughout this month, all of our TasteWise live sessions, which is a weekly research session that we host on our website, you can uh, find the link to it on our on our website, are all about these specific use cases that we're talking about here. So uh, the vegan cheese uh, use case, the beverage use case, um, and going into the actual platform and uh, and looking up uh, the actual restaurants that, uh, that you need to look into. Um, and we're also giving away a lot of this information to people who need it. So if you uh, if there's anything that you think would be helpful for you, like for example, you want to know um, how many restaurants fit a, for a specific cuisine profile in a specific region, uh, send us a note at live at tastewise.io and we'll do our best to, um, to help you out. Uh, the Food Intelligence Podcast is produced by Ophir Nagar and edited by Daniel Gall. Um, so thank you so much to the wonderful team that makes this happen every single week. And Miriam, thank you so much for putting together um, all of these incredible insights. We hope this has been uh, helpful and informative for you. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. 